Well, let's, uh, let's turn your, our Bibles, if you would, to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Someone was asking me about the conference and said, okay, I'm thinking about going to the conference. Is this just, is this just basic stuff? I've been to a couple of conferences before, received some biblical counseling training. Is, is this basic stuff? And I said, well, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would consider myself not a complete novice to a biblical counseling. I, I've probably had less training in biblical counseling than any other speaker, speaker you'll hear this, this weekend, but I've had some training in this and thought about some of these related issues, and so I'm not completely uh, novice in these things. And, and yet, as I think about this message, uh, I, I can't think of a message that I've spent more time preparing for over the last few years than what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. It's, uh, you know, I'm not a last-minute guy in terms of preparation. Uh, this is a message I've been thinking about for weeks and months, and Kind of re- God has providentially brought some material in my life over the last few weeks that I've been reading related to this, and I'll talk more about that this morning. So I'm not uh, a novice. I've been thinking about this a, lot, a long time, and I'll tell you, even uh, yesterday afternoon as I was walking out of the office, Kent saw me leaving and said, hey, Daniel, I am, I'm, you know, kind Kent. He said, I'm just so excited, looking forward to hearing you talk tomorrow morning. And I said, ha, right, thank you, thank you, Kent, and I have like a whole, I literally have like a hundred pages worth of material in my hands that I'm still kind of thinking through, how do I bring all of this together this morning? So we'll see, we'll see how it comes together this morning as we, as we talk, but this is, uh, this is basic stuff in a sense, as I talk to this person who's thinking about going to this conference, uh, it's the most basic subject of all, really foundational, it's, it's the gospel, and uh, yet, uh, yet it's, it's simple enough to talk about in a few minutes, and yet profound enough to spend eternity trying to unravel. Okay, and so we're going to spend some time between that amount, sometime between a few minutes and eternity. It may feel like eternity, but sometime in between there is the amount of time we're going to spend uh, talking about these issues. And so if you, you pray with me, and then we'll read uh, Colossians uh, together, and then kind of dive into some things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to be in relationship with you uh, through him. And Father, this, this gospel message of us being united with you uh, through our union with Christ and relationship with you because of our union with Christ, uh, I, I confess to not understanding. And not only do I not understand how it begins, I don't understand how this relationship continues. Uh, the, these things are beyond my ability to grasp fully and and, and yet I'm called to live in obedience to them. And so I, I pray that you would help me to be more obedient in this area and help each of us to be obedient in this area, uh, to live our lives united with your son Jesus, living lives that bring glory to you, not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who your son is, not striving in our own works, but striving uh, with the work with which, you equip, uh, with, with which you equip us. Help us to think through these things carefully this morning. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, a, one of our missionary partners invited me to come speak at uh, his church, and so I was really excited about that, and I was kind of preparing for that, and he said, uh, we, we, need you to, we need to run a, a background check on you. And I said, seriously, we, we, like, we've been in a relationship for years? He goes, yeah, it's kind of policy. He said, okay. And so he asked if, if we would run the background check on me. So I said, okay, well, I'll run a background check on myself. Good news, I, I am who I say I am. Uh, but as we were running this background check, we found, uh, I was kind of glad we ran it, because we found that there was someone in Chicago who had stolen my identity. They had taken my reasonably good name and my uh, credit score and my social security number, and they had uh, opened a Comcast account in Chicago, had their address and everything. And uh, I was kind of perturbed. I was perturbed, first of all, because it takes a lot of work to recover your identity from identity theft. I was also somewhat perturbed because they had cable and I didn't. And it seemed, <laughs> seemed really unfair that someone was taking my identity and getting cable and I didn't have it. And so uh, we, uh, we kind of worked through that. And as I was thinking about this topic this morning, our identity in Christ, you know, there's, there's some similarities between what that person did and what that what, what we do as well in terms of taking an identity that's not our own. And yet, there's also some differences as well, right? First of all, it's different than just identity theft, what we're talking about this morning, because it, it goes much deeper. 
we're the beneficiaries of appropriating someone else's good name, and yet we're not just pretending to be someone else, but as we think about our identity in Christ, what it means is that we're not just pretending to be Christ, but we are totally dependent upon Jesus Christ and his identity and his righteousness. We, we, God looks at, on us and sees Jesus Christ in a deep and profound way. And it's also different, it's also different, not because we've stolen an identity, but because God demands that we identify with Christ. Not just for salvation. We're not just supposed to identify with Jesus Christ for initial salvation, justification, but we are called to depend upon Christ and be identified with Christ on a moment-by-moment basis. Every moment of my life, I'm to be in Christ, identifying with him. And that is a profound truth. Every one of us here, I would hope, understands the the basic of the gospel message. And yet, as we think about the basics of the gospel message and applying that in our day-to-day lives, it becomes very difficult to think about how we're supposed to do this. And so, uh, for example, if, if I'm just an individual living my Christian life, if I get off just a little bit on this understanding of what it means to be in Christ, there's a very real possibility that I will live, just I get off a couple degrees, there's every possibility that I will live a life in, in disobedience to God as I pursue a path that God would not have me to pursue in a way that he wouldn't call me to pursue it. And as a counselor, if I fail to understand what it means to live our lives in light of the gospel, if I fail to understand that, there is a real possibility that my counsel to others would not just be bad counsel, but damning counsel. There's every possibility if, as a counselor, I don't understand the gospel message and how it's lived out in a person's life, there's every possibility that my counsel to the person who comes to me in in need of some sort of advice or some sort of understanding of how to live the Christian life, if I don't understand the gospel, there's every possibility that I not only give them bad advice, but damning advice. And so this is a very important thing for us to think about. Here's the main thing that I want us to consider as we think through what's, what's taking place uh, here in this passage. The main thing I want us to, in, in many passages, is this. The gospel proclaims that we are in Christ through faith, a union, that union with Christ, that shapes all that we are and do. And let me just read a few verses from Colossians 1. We're going to be in several places this morning, but let me just read a little bit from Colossians 1. It says, uh, Paul writes in Colossians 1, in verse 9, he's talking about what he's heard from the people in Colossae. He says, and from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what, what happens there? We've been delivered from do- uh, this domain of darkness, this kingdom of darkness, and we've been transferred in this new kingdom. We're citizens of this new kingdom, and it's the kingdom of Jesus, and it's in him that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he tells us about who Jesus Christ is. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, And for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together, and he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. I want to talk about this, this union with Jesus Christ, he who is, is fully God and became fully man. I want to talk about that union with Jesus Christ, the gospel message, and I'm going to, to do this in, in a couple ways. Here's how we're going to get through what we're talking about this morning. First of all, we're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about the gospel and our need for Christ. Then we're going to talk about the problem. Even though we may understand doctrinally what the gospel message is, if I kind of got you alone and said, okay, tell me, how do I get into a relationship with Jesus Christ? I would imagine that most of you would be able to kind of get the basics of the gospel message down. But we're going to talk about a problem. And the problem is this. We have a doctrinal acceptance of the gospel, but a practical denial of it in our lives. We're going to talk about what that looks like. A a doctrinal acceptance of the gospel, but a, a practical denial of the gospel in our lives. We may be able to articulate the wordless book, or maybe it'll say the good news, bad news, or the evangelism explosion outline. But practically, we deny the gospel and how we live, and we'll talk about how that's true. Then we're going to talk about the solution, our identity in Christ, and then uh, we're going to talk about the application, our, our union with Christ lived out. And let's begin by talking about the gospel, our need for Christ. At some point uh, in your Christian life, Someone is going to come to you. Maybe it's going to be in the, the situation of, of a formal counseling relationship. Uh, maybe it's going to be a, a son or a daughter or a friend or a co-worker, a, a church member. And uh, again, it could be formal or informal type of counsel that they're asking for. And as this person talks with you, they're going to tell you what the issue is in their life. Uh, maybe it's going to be that they're, they're struggling in their marriage relationship. Or maybe it's going to be that they're struggling with a, a family member. Maybe there's a, a parent and they're having just a really hard time dealing with a, a parent or a sibling. Or, or maybe they're just in a, in a tough situation at work and they're not quite sure how to respond to a, a tough situation that they've been put in. Or maybe they're struggling with the, a manifestation of, of the flesh. And there's, there's lust or maybe there's, there's just anger. and they're, they're struggling. And as they talk to you, uh, you understand as you listen to them, this person Uh, this person needs the gospel. You know the foundational truth is that they need the good news of Jesus Christ. All other counsel that you give to this person, believer or unbeliever, is going to flow from the truth of the gospel and who they are or who they are not, in the case of the unbeliever, in Christ. So let's talk about this good news. And and sometimes we we focus on a very narrow aspect of the gospel. And so let's, let's first of all start big. Let's start with the overarching story of God's redemption and put the gospel message in context. And uh, here's what Graham Goldsworthy says. He says this as we talk about the, the grand story of God's redemption. He says, the idea of the rule of God over creation, over all creatures, over the kingdoms of the world, and in a unique and special way over his chosen redeemed people is the very heart of the message of the Hebrew scriptures. And you could even broaden that and say of, of scripture in general. And this is uh, Graham Goldsworthy, and he's also quoted uh, in a book called Kingdom Through Covenant by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wilhelm, and I'm going to be drawing a lot on what they've written in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, in, in this section. We think about the big story of God's redemption. Here's, here's a couple things to think about as we think about putting the gospel in context in the big story of redemption. Here's the first thing. We see that Scripture begins with the declaration that God, as creator and triune Lord, is the sovereign ruler and king of the universe. We're thinking about the big story of God's redemption, and it doesn't begin with you. It doesn't begin with me. The big story of God's redemption begins with God. And what do we see as Scripture begins? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The big story of God's redemption begins with God, with this creator God who creates this entire universe, and it's an entire universe over which he reigns as king. I think one of the most profound uh, photographs that I've, I've ever seen in my life was taken on Valentine's Day, 1990. It was taken by Voyager 1, and maybe you've, you've seen this, this picture. The picture itself isn't that beautiful, but, but what's behind the picture is, is, is mind-boggling. The picture is, is mostly black with just a couple rays of light, but that picture taken by Voyager 1 on February the 14th, 1990, was taken six billion miles away from Earth. Maybe you've seen it. 
And as Voyager begins to leave the solar system, uh, someone gives the order for the, the camera to kind of turn back around. And so the camera of Voyager looks back and it begins to take a, a series of pictures. And I think there's like 640,000 pixels in this picture. And in less than one pixel, in less than one pixel, a little ray of light that the lens captured on Voyager's that took this picture is, is the Earth. And the picture is called Pale Blue Dot. Carl Sagan, who is uh, no friend of Christianity, but he, he wrote this as he talked about that photograph. He, this is what he writes from the perspective of a secular humanist. He says, we succeeded in taking that picture from deep space. And if you look at it, you see a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. It's been said that astronomy is a humbling, and I might add a character-building experience. To my mind, there is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. I think in that, he's exactly right. Six billion miles away, there's this little picture of the earth, and and it's it's just this pale blue dot suspended in the midst of space. And six billion miles in terms of astronomical distance is nothing, right? That's, That's nothing. Our solar system is just a blip in the galaxy, and our galaxy is a blip in the universe. It, there are distances in the universe that we can't even comprehend. Now, here's the deal. You and I live on a, a little speck of dust in a little tiny solar system, a little tiny galaxy, in an immense universe. And this universe is the expanse of God's kingdom. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor praise to my carved idols. Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 93, 2, Psalm 93.2, your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. And God as king, this is so important, if we're going to understand our identity correctly and our need for God, we must grasp this. The gospel is not a story about these, these precious human beings elevating themselves to where God says, I need that person in my kingdom. The, king, the kingdom of God is a story about an all-sufficient, sovereign king looking upon people who live on a speck of dust. God in and of himself is completely sufficient. Psalm 50, Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the, Lord and, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Acts 17, Paul says this in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is the creator God. He's the triune Lord. He's the sovereign ruler and king of the universe. And the creation of God is not the the creation that he does of the universe is not the end of his plan. Here's the second thing we see. Peter and Wil- uh, Wilhelm and Stephen Gentry write in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant. Number two, even though the triune God is universal king and Lord, given the fall, everything changes, right? Everything changes. We're going to go back to this truth in a little bit, but God's kingship is, is challenged in the garden, Right? As Kent mentioned last night, Eve listened to a different counselor, and this different counselor told her things. He said that God isn't good in the commands that he's given you. He said that God isn't good, and he says the decree that you would die is is false, and and Eve believed that, right? We're going to see later the gospel attacks these lies of the serpent and other lies that continue to assault the gospel. But as we struggle to, uh, to understand our identity in light of the gospel, We need to understand that we cannot doubt God's decrees and his character. So, what does this mean? It means that when we sin, it's not just that we've done some bad things. It's not just that these things don't make us happy. It's not that these these things in, in my life don't lead to the happiness that I would desire. What I need to understand is I think about the gospel in the context of God's plan of redemption. When I sin, I am in rebellion to a sovereign king. I'm in rebellion to the God of the universe. 
Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so as I sin, I, I have fallen away from a relationship with God, and I am in open rebellion to the sovereign ruler of all. Third thing to think about here. We see here as we think about God's overarching plan of redemption, as, as the Old Testament unfolds, number three, God's kingdom is revealed and comes most clearly through the biblical covenants. There's so much we can unpack about this, but the wondrous thing happens here is, is God divinely intervenes in human history. He takes interest in fallen humanity. He takes interest in those of us who are in rebellion to him. Psalm 8 Verse 3, the psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? A covenant that God enters into with us is is not a a contract. It's, It's the defining of a relationship. And the idea that a sovereign God creator of the universe, would, would be mindful of specks of dust on a speck of dust is, is mind-boggling, right? And God is, enters into relationship with us through covenants, through defining of our relationship. I'm in rebellion to a, a king. I'm not the object of the universe's affection. I'm a rebel to the king who is the reason the universe was created. It's for him and for his glory. I'm in rebellion to him, and yet he takes interest in me. Fourthly, we see this. In the Old Testament, these promises, hopes, and expectations of God's kingdom are picked up, proclaimed, and announced by the prophets. And so as you, as you go through your, your scripture, and as, if you're a biblical counselor, you want to be biblical in your counsel, as, as, as Mike defined so well last night. As you think about where you are in, in the text, as you take people to it, you understand as you come to the, the Old Testament prophets, you're proclaiming a message of the hope and the expectation of God's kingdom. And our application we have to be careful as we make applications from the text, right? And here's a fifth thing. I want to kind of move through these because there's so much more to get to. In the Gospels in the entire New Testament, in the Gospels in the entire New Testament, the kingdom of God refers primarily to God's kingdom and sovereignly rule. And it's especially, it's especially tied to God's saving reign that is broken into this world in the coming life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. Let me read that again if you're having trouble reading it there on the, the overhead. So in the Gospels, as we think about coming in the New Testament, uh, the kingdom of God refers primarily to God's kingly and sovereign rule. And it's especially tied to God's saving reign that is broken into this world in the coming life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. That's a big picture. Now, there's, there's two thoughts that, that I think help us as we get ready to talk about the gospel in a more narrow sense. First of all, as we think about God's word, we as biblical counselors, I as a biblical counselor, as, as a pastor, can sometimes be guilty of, of cherry-picking verses, right? Here's, here's a verse that sounds good, and somebody just kind of, here you go, here's, here's a verse. What's the context? I don't know. It's something, something, something. As we practice biblical counsel and, and want to give our counselees the gospel, we need to understand how the text that we're giving them, that the scripture that we believe is, is sufficient for life and godliness, we need to understand how this, this text fits into God's overarching story of redemption. Where, where does this come? Who's it to? What's the message that we're gleaning from? We need to be very careful as we practice biblical counsel not to be poor students of the word, not dividing the word incorrectly. Here's a second application as I think about God's big story of redemption. As I think about God's offer, the go- offer of the gospel, I need, to, I need to explain it rightly. This isn't just an offer by God to get right with him. It's not just that. It's, it's not just an offer to, have a, a, to solve some problems in your life. It's not just an offer to have a friend. This is an offer to participate in the kingdom established by the ruler of the universe. And I do need to understand my part in that rightly and how I enter into that relationship and and what my place is in all that. Again, I need to understand the purpose of the universe. The universe did not come into existence so that I could have all that my heart desires apart from God. 
The universe came into existence so that, that God's purposes could be fulfilled. And the only way that the universe is ever going to make sense and is ever going to be a, a source of joy for me is if I delight in the right thing. And only that can happen through being in Christ. And let's, let's turn to that. Let me skip that next. Uh, I'm not going to have time to get into that, that next diagram. But here's, here's the four simple words that I want us to think about as we think about the good news of the gospel. And these are words that I'm sure you've, you've heard uh, before. And maybe there'd be different ways that you would communicate the gospel. Maybe you'd use the Romans road or you would use the good news, bad news, or the evangelism explosion rule, uh, uh, evangelism, evangelism explosion uh, presentation. But here's just four words, and these are adapted from uh, What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. The first word is God, right? The first word is God. God is the, the starting point of the gospel. He created and he owns everything. We saw that in Genesis 1. God is, is perfectly holy, requires perfect holiness. Matthew five forty eight. you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God loves humanity, right? He loves humanity. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is, is holy. He requires perfect holiness. But we also know that he, he uh, not only loves humanity, but he's going to, to punish sin. Romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death. He offers heaven as a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one may boast. Now, how can all these things be true? How can it be true that God will punish sin and yet he loves humanity and offers heaven as a free gift? Well, it becomes even more incredible as we think about the second word, man, right, or, or humanity. What do we know about humanity? Well, we know that we're sinners, uh, sinners who can't save ourselves. Romans 3 talks about our, our sinful state. No one is righteous, no, not one. The, uh, Paul quotes the psalmist in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, and no one understands. No one seeks for God. There's no fear of God before their eyes, verse, seven, uh, verse 18. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be accountable to God. We're all sinners, all of sin, verse 23, and fallen short of the glory of God. And we, we can't save ourselves, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're completely unable, we're completely unable in and of ourselves to justify a relationship with God. Brings us to the third word, Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, and died for our sins, right? Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And what did he do? This perfect God, perfect man lived a perfect life. And we see in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I, I deliver the, the gospel which you received and which you stand, by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So as we think about our identity, who we are, couldn't be further apart than who Jesus is, right? Who are we? We're sinners. We can't save ourselves. Who is Jesus? He's fully God. He's fully man. He's, he's, uh, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. We, we could not be further apart in terms of, of who we are, in terms of our identity. So what's the, the last word to think about? That's the word response. And what is our response? It's repentance and belief. Hebrews 6.1, we the foundation is repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. We repent. We repent. We turn from our sin. There's an, a, there's an a, intellectual awareness of our sin. There's an emotional desire to turn. And there's that, that commitment to do so. Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. 
And what do we do is we, we turn, we, we believe, we place our faith in Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so what happens there? Well, it's, it's the divine transfer. Uh, we cannot be further apart from who Jesus is. Our identity is a person uh, who is in rebellion to the king of the universe. That's, that's who we are at our core. Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. He's fully God. He's fully man. He pays the penalty for our sin. And what do we see? 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us, this is an important part, that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. In other words, he didn't just come so that you and I could, could, could go to heaven and see our, our little doggy that, that died when we were four years. I don't think your dog's going to be there, by the way. It's off topic, but just want to throw that bomb out there. Some of you are falling asleep. No. It wasn't just, you'll have everything you need to be happy, don't worry. It wasn't just so that you could see these really cool streets paved with gold. I mean, it wasn't just so you could have, see this really cool stream or something. It, that's not the ultimate purpose of the gospel. The ultimate purpose of the gospel wasn't so that your, your relationships here on earth could be restored perfectly. The ultimate, here's, the ultimate thing of the gospel is the righteous dies for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God so that we could be in him and with God. That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So our sake, we're sinners, he made him to be sin so that, uh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And then uh, this is so important, and my eyes read over this very carefully. Now maybe you're further along in this than I am, but this this is hard for me. It says, so that in him, so that in him we might we might become the righteousness of God. How do we become the righteousness of God? You say, well, it's through faith, and that's absolutely true. But that's not how Scripture fully describes this. It's not like I'm over here, Jesus is over here, and I'm over here, and now I I pray this prayer, and suddenly I'm righteous. It's not just that. My righteousness is found in the fact that I am in Christ. I'm in him. I have a righteousness that's foreign to myself because now I'm in Christ. Now, I'm guessing that most of us could give some sort of gospel explanation like this, or at least agree with it. And here's the deal. Most of the people who come to you and say, I'm, I'm a Christian, could give this answer as well. So how, tell me the gospel. And many of them, maybe, may, I don't know the percentage, many of them could probably, could probably do the same. They could at least say, well, I need to pray and ask Jesus to come into my heart or something like that. Some sort of idea of, I know I'm a sinner and need Jesus. Most, most people could do that, probably. So why isn't it being lived out? And why, this is a hard thing, why do so many of us not even know that we're not living out the gospel in the way that we ought to? Let's talk about the problem. The problem, our doctrinal acceptance but practical denial of the gospel. And uh, here's an interesting phenomenon. You and I can be people who understand every doctrinal aspect of the gospel in our heads. We can, underst- we can uh, articulate every idea of, um, of the atonement. We can talk about imputation. We can talk about um, all, all the aspects of, of the gospel, propitiation. I mean, we, we could doctrinally understand that and, and, and our, have the head knowledge to do it, and we could uh, have a deep conversation about the gospel. And you could talk to me and say, man, that guy, that guy understands the gospel. I mean, that guy gets it. We could, we could do that and still not get it. Why is that? The reason is, and again, maybe, maybe this is new for me and, and things I've been thinking from, and I'm going to say, and you're like, yeah, hello, I've been there for 20 years. That's great. I've been struggling with this. We can have that doctrinal understanding and yet still not be living out because, because ultimately it's not just a head issue, it's a heart issue. Appropriation of the gospel isn't just a doctrinal issue, it's a heart issue. And if it was just a head issue, we, we could deal with it pretty easily. And yet, and yet it's a hard issue. L- let me try to explain by, by giving you an example. And this is, uh, this is from something called the Marrow Controversy. The Marrow Controversy. And I'm, I'm taking a lot, what I, I'm taking basically everything that I say here from a book called The Whole Christ 
the whole Christ, um, legalism, antinomianism, and gospel assurance, why the marrow controversy still matters. And it's by, that book is by a man named Sinclair Ferguson. Now, maybe some of you are uh, more well-versed in 18th century Scottish theological controversies than I am. Uh, that, that would not be hard to do because I am not very well-versed in uh, Scottish theological controversies of the 18th century. But I... Uh, in my ignorance of that topic, had, had never heard of the Merrow Controversies. If you're from Scotland, apparently you've heard of this a, a lot, but um, I had never heard of this, okay? Um, but what happened is this. Uh, what happened is this. It was uh, February 12th, 1717. February 12th, 1717. And there was a young man who was preparing to become a Presbyterian minister. And so he's in his village church and uh, there was uh, an ordination council, something like that, and so they're asking this this young man all these doctrinal questions. And I've I've sat in on these. I've 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 been the one asking the questions. I've been the one receiving the questions. And and they, you know it can it can be a little intense sometimes to be to be getting all these questions. And so there's a a, a person who asked a question, and it was uh, it was a trick question. It was a, a question with uh, I think Ferguson says it was a a question with a hook on it. In other words, there was. There is more to the question than the question itself. And, and let me just read to you what the question was or what, what the statement was. And he was, being, he was asked to affirm or deny this statement. Here's the statement. I believe it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to come to Christ and to begin us and to place us in a covenant with God. Okay, let me, let me read that again. I'm kind of paraphrasing. But he says, here's a statement. You have to, you have, and this is you. You guys are all Presbyterian, young Presbyterian people preparing for ordination. And, and you have to say whether you agree or disagree with it. And we'll be asking this question as you leave today. Um, affirm or deny this. I believe it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must first forsake sin to come to Christ and to begin and place us in a covenant with God. So what would you say? Is it true that you need to forsake sin first in order to come to God? Do you need to forsake sin in order to be placed in covenant with God? Now the young man, the young man struggled. Essentially what, what, the, what the words were saying is this, would you agree that you should tell a person that you need to forsake sin before you can receive the gospel? Now I had to. Re- I, I don't, I'm just going to be. I'm just going to be transparent with you. <laughs> I'm reading this book, and uh, I don't. Again, ignorant of my 18th century Scottish theological controversies, I don't know what the right answer is. <laughs> like, okay, which which side is the book taking? You know, flip to the end. <laughs> is this good or bad? <laughs> I don't know. Here's what was behind the question. Here's what was behind the question. There was a belief within the Scottish church, there was a struggle with legalism. And people were being told, look, before we can give you the gospel, you need to prove that you're part of the elect. And so before you can receive the gospel, we need to see you forsake sin. You see how that's not the gospel? It's subtle. In fact, in fact it, it, it tore the Scottish church apart for a period of time. And the young man disagreed. He was told, look, you're not fit to preach the gospel. And then the larger governing body got involved. And they, they told his presbytery, you have to reinstate him. And then uh, some condemned the creed. Others, others agreed with the creed. And there were two pastors who were sitting next to one another. And one mentioned a book that he had seen on the shelf of one of his, of one of his parishioners that kind of addressed this issue. And so he published the book. The presbytery got mad at that book being published that addressed this issue. And it split the church apart in many ways. And decades of them kind of thinking through this. And one side accused the other of being legalists, and the other accused the other side of being uh, lawless, okay? Saying the law didn't matter. Now, now here's the deal. They both, both sides subscribed the same doctrinal statement that, that worded this thing perfectly, and yet it wasn't just a doctrinal issue. It was a hard issue. There were kind of three things, several, several ways to understand the key issues here. One, the question was, who can receive the gospel? And here's kind of the, the logical progression they went through. The, there's this major premise that, that said this, the saving grace of God in Christ is given to the elect alone. Let me say that again. The big idea, the, the saving grace of God is only given to the elect. Well, okay, true, right? The elect are those who receive God's grace. And then the, the minor premise, okay, 
uh, the elect are known by the forsaking of sin. Okay, well, that's true. If a, if a person is elect and places their faith in Christ, you see them forsake sin. So the elect are the people who receive God's grace, and the elect forsake sin. And so the conclusion that the Scottish, some in the Scottish church had drawn was, well, then forsaking sin is a prerequisite to saving grace. In other words, you need to forsake sin before we can proclaim the gospel to you. There's an emphasis on repentance in the Scottish church that argued, look, you have to become a certain way before you receive Christ. You need to, we need to see repentance manifested before faith can be exercised. The gospel is only to be offered to those who demonstrate by their works that they're part of the elect. The bottom line is they were separating, this is, this is so important, they were separating the benefits of the gospel from Jesus Christ. And that's really the a second question as we think about the key issues that were at stake here in the marrow controversy. Can you separate the benefits of the gospel apart from the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ? Can you separate, this is so important for us to get right in our counseling, can you separate the benefits of the gospel from the person of Jesus Christ? And the answer, of course, is no. Now, it's subtle because we say, well, forsaking a sin is a fruit of grace, but, but these people had made it a, pre- a precursor to experiencing grace. Repentance, which is a, f- a fruit of God's grace in one's life, became a qualification to receive it. People were separating the benefits of the gospel from Christ, who is the gospel. And now, this, get this, it wasn't deliberate. It wasn't conscious. It was subtle. And we do the same thing. We begin to believe that people have the ability to pursue the benefits we receive from the gospel apart from being in Christ. Another question related to the moral controversy was this. How, how do we preach the gospel? How do we preach the gospel? Now, think about that in terms of counseling. Counseling yourself and others. When people come to you for counseling, they may be very quick to affirm statements like, well, Jesus died for me. I'm a sinner. I'm saved by faith it doesn't mean that they truly understand the gospel, and it certainly doesn't mean that they're living it out, right? If failing to live in the gospel were just a doctrinal issue, we could settle it really quickly, right? A person comes to me and says, look, uh, Daniel, um, I, I believe that I'm found acceptable to God on the basis of my works. Oh, <laughs> you silly fellow, that's not true. You're not. Oh, now I get it. Thank you. No problem. No charge. See you later. Oh, awesome. No longer living as a legalist. But that's not how it works, right? That's not how it works. We have a heart problem. As I look at the content of my preaching, for sure as a a younger pastor, very much the, the, the content of the preaching was about doing things, but not necessarily about Christ. Now, Let's talk about two practical ways we deny the gospel, and the first is legalism. We see here the appeal of legalism. And there are many ways that we can define legalism. Basically, legalism is a belief that we can be found acceptable by God on the basis of what we do in and of ourselves. And it goes deeper, right? What we do as we practice legalism is we separate the law God's commandments from the person who gave us the law, right? As we practice legalism, what we're doing is we're separating the law from the person who gave us the law. And over and over again, we see legalism condemned in scriptures. The Pharisees are condemned for their legalism, and there's maybe some of you have heard about the new perspective on Paul, and there's a lot of controversy about what do the Pharisees actually believe, and no matter what they believe doctrinally, what we see them living out practically is legalism. And as we look at Scripture, we see people engaged in legalism who didn't know that they were doing it. So, for example, Colossians, and Colossians chapter 2, listen to what Paul says. He says, look, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have, indeed, the, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made 
religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, what's the problem here? If you had asked the people in Colossae, hey, have you denied the gospel? They'd say, no, of course we haven't denied the gospel. They'd say, well, do you, how do you believe a person's saved? Well, I believe a person's saved by, by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how should you live the Christian life? Well, by having faith in Jesus Christ. And then as you talked about them practically what they're doing, you say, well, look, why, why are you doing all these things? Why are, you do, like, why are you doing these things? Why are, you, uh, why are you submitting yourselves to all these regulations? Don't handle this. Don't taste, th- don't taste this. Don't touch this. Why are you doing that? Well, I want, I want to be found right before God. What's the main problem? The main problem is it goes against finding everything in Christ. And Paul and Colossians, that we already read about, had talked about who Jesus is. Think about the book of Galatians. Galatians is a, is a great book for the legalists to, to confront themselves with. If you come to Galatians, you see here Paul confronting the church here, and he says, look, you foolish Galatians, he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, who was it that bewitched you? Now, as you think about the, pers- the, the people that he's talking about here in, 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 the, in this epistle, he's not talking about people who didn't understand the gospel. Who are the people that he confronts? He confronts the believers there, and, and two of them are Barnabas and, and Peter. Now, if you're deluded enough to think that you're more doctrinally savvy than Peter, <laughs> there, I think there's another session on pride later, right? But if Peter didn't get it, if Peter struggled to live out what he knew doctrinally to be true, how can you and I say we, we won't struggle with this? And Paul goes on, he says, look, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then he says, are you so foolish, having, been, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? In other words, there's this, this belief, this subtle thing that has affected your life by which you believe that by pursuing this, this legalistic lifestyle, you can be perfected. Now, when we talk about the Christian life, we know that God has given us both indicatives and imperatives. So like indicatives are, are statements that are just true of who we are. In Christ, I know that I'm forgiven. I know that I'm a son of God. There, there's indicatives, just, just statements that are true about who I am in Christ. These are, these are things that are true. And there are also imperatives. So there are indicatives and there are imperatives. There are commands that God has given me about how I'm supposed to live. And the legalist, the practical legalist, focuses on the imperatives, things that God has told us to do. The legalist focuses on these rules and separates the rules from the person of God. Stuart Scott says when a, when a person begins to emphasize the imperatives without Christ, they focus on their own strength. They begin a hopeless pursuit of, of ineffective rules. They have this performance-driven life. Legalism is, is more subtle than we know. In the, in the marrow controversy, the ministers believed that they were advocating they, they, they believe they're advocating salvation by faith, not by works. They, they subscribe to a great doctrinal statement. But as they presented the offer of the gospel, they, they wanted to see the fruits before they allowed them to receive the gospel. Now as a counselor of ourselves and others, as we listen to ourselves and others talk about our relationship with God, do we hear us talking about what we're doing? Do we hear us talking a lot about what we're we're doing? How's your Christian life? Well, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing ministry. I'm leading my family in quiet times. Is there a focus on, on doing? I'm doing these things, and so I'm doing these things, and so I'm hopeful that I'm going to get what I want. I'm, I'm doing these things, so I think that God is going to give me happiness. I'm doing these things, so I think that God is going to solve this problem in my life. I'm doing these, these things so I can get what I want. I, I know if I, I do these things, then, then God is going to have to respond to me because he's going to see these things in me. He's going, okay, good job. You've read your Bible enough. You've prayed enough. Now I'll, I'll give you this release you want. Now, I'll tell you this. As a counselor, one of the things that, when people come to me counseling, and one of the things that makes me happiest is when they do their homework, right? Oh, thank goodness. When I, I ask them to read this, and they actually do it. But you know what? A counselee who gets really pumped about doing their homework can just be a legalist, right? And I can confuse life change for legalism. Legalism for life change. 
Legalism is so appealing, and I don't even know how it's appealing to me. There can be times that my heart is so far from God that if I honestly assess my life, I'd say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not getting it. I'm not, I'm not in relationship with God the way that I needed to be. But if I'm a legalist, I can say, you know what, it's okay because I can point to some externals and say, look, I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, so I think I'm okay. That's the heart of a legalist, and it's so subtle, and it's so real, and it permeates all of us. We also see in this marrow controversy and and as we think about our identity in Christ and the struggle we have, there's also the appeal of antinomianism. Anti anti means against. Uh, Namos is the Greek word for law. And so there's a lot of different ways to define antinomianism. What, What I'm talking about is a person who says God's commandments aren't necessary. I'm in no obligation to obey them, to know them, to apply them. I don't want to live under the law. This is a person who kind of rejects rejects these things, rejects studying God's commandments and being obedient to them. They are the people who, who kind of glory in the indicatives of the gospel. This is who I am in Christ. This is who I am in Christ. And then whenever you see the imperatives, ah, that's okay. I'm no legalist. This is also condemned in Scripture, right? This idea that, well, sanctification is optional. The imperatives of the gospel are suggestions. There's no real thought in the antinomianist heart about the holiness of God. Kevin DeYoung stresses the importance of not just centering on justification with all its privileges and its implications. He says the, the New Testament gives us commands, and these commands involve more than just remembering and revisiting and rediscovering the reality of our justification. That's what an antinomianist says. He says we must also, we have to do some things. We have to, to put on. We have to, to put off. We have to put to death. We have to strive. We have to make every effort. And yet to this effort is always connected gospel grace. But we can't simply say Effort is just believing. Now, obviously there's a problem with the person who believes the indicatives don't apply to them, right? The person who says, well, the indicatives don't apply to me, or the uh, imperatives don't apply to me, just, just the indicatives. There's obviously a problem, but it's the same problem the legalist has. This person has, just as the legalist has disconnected the commands of God from the character of God, the antinomian has also connected the commands of God from the character of God. God says in 1 John 5, 3, through the Apostle John, that God's commands aren't, aren't burdensome. The commands you're following are, are burdensome. They're not God's. So what's the solution? Let's talk about the solution. The solution is our, our identity in Christ. Now, let's just, let me just kind of step back for a second. As we think about the gospel and how it's denied practically in our lives through legalism or antinomianism. If as you're hearing me talk about legalism or antinomianism, you think, well, you know what? One of those is bad, but one of those is a lot worse. You know, I would definitely like to err on the side of this one than that one. If that's your response, then you don't understand how both are damaging to the gospel, right? And, I, and again, just, just being um, transparent in, in terms of the course of my life, I have I've much more frequently feared lawlessness than legalism, which tells you all you need to know about me and my struggles, right? But here's the interesting thing. Both of these are going to separate us from the gospel of Christ. And they're not opposites of each other. They're not opposites of each other. In other words, it's not like you come across, a legalist comes into your, your uh, life and says, look, uh, Daniel, I am struggling with legalism. You don't say, you know what, I've got just the solution. It's called lawlessness. You'll love it. It's great. That's what you need. The, the antinomianism doesn't come and say, I'm really struggling. I, I just don't believe the you know, commandments of God are very helpful for me. I've got just the solution. It's called legalism. It's going to be great for you. You're going to get your path right on the narrow way, and we're going to kind of balance things out. Here's a lawless person. We're going to give you a legalism. Here's a legalist person. We're going to give you a lawlessness. That's not how it works, because both of these both of these are ways in which we separate the character of God from the commands of God. We separate the character of God from the benefits of the gospel. Both of them are potentially damning as a person relies upon one or the other instead of coming to the person of Jesus Christ. Both separate us from the gospel. Both separate us from Christ. God never prescribes one for the other. Neither is a cure for the other. The cure for the both of them is Christ. The solution is to return to Christ and understand our identity in him. Let's talk about being in Christ. You know, if, if you were to ask, what is it, 
how, how would you describe a person who's a Christian? What word would you use? Many of us would say, well, I'd, I'd use the word Christian, or I'd use the word believer, or I'd use the word disciple, and those are all good words. But you know what's interesting? Probably the one I would use most frequently is, well, that person's a Christian, or I'm a Christian. What's interesting is we don't see that word used very frequently to describe a Christian in, in Scripture. What's we see it used, I think, three times, and each time it's used by someone who's on the outside. In other words, there's an outsider, and they're talking about these, these people, and they call them Christians. So it's an outsider term to describe us, generally. What do, we use, what do we see used in Scripture to describe who we are again and again and again? We see the phrase, in Christ, or, or in him. The phrase in Christ is used 83 times, I think, by Paul. In the Lord is used 47 times. This doesn't include all the times we see in him. So how does Scripture refer to someone who's a believer? Well, it's, it's, it's a person who's in him, who's in Christ. And we see so many of these in the New Testament. In fact, let's just turn to one passage. Uh, turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And I want us to, to just, just read this passage. I think this is a passage that I'm going to look at uh, on Easter Sunday. And I want you to see how many times we see this idea of of being in Christ, united with him, and the benefits that are ours in Christ. So uh, Ephesians chapter 1, this is all one sentence in the Greek. It's the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. And uh, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why should he be blessed? And he goes on and he tells us there's some Trinitarian elements to this passage too that we won't get into, but just notice all the things it says about being in Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you see what Paul is saying there? No benefit of the gospel, no benefit in eternity past, no benefit of the gospel in eternity past, no benefit of the gospel in the present, and no benefit of the gospel in the future is yours apart from Christ. Nothing. No redemption, no inheritance, no election, nothing is yours apart from Christ. Nothing. Everything is is in him. Now, as I live the Christian life, I need to keep in mind both the narrow and the broad focus of the gospel. As I live the Christian life, I understand that my identity apart from Christ is that I am a sinner separated from God for eternity. I understand that in a a broad sense, I cannot live as I'm called to live on my own effort or, or upon my own work. It's only through Christ. And it's only through understanding that that I can balance and and fulfill both the indicatives and the imperatives of the gospel. And let me just show you this in a couple of passages. I I wish I had more time, but let me just just show you. um, Here, you can write down a couple, and I'll just just show you one. One is Romans 6. You can just write that down. Romans 6, and you can just look at Romans 6. And as you look at Romans 6, he, he talks about who we are and how we've been united with Christ in his death and when we've been united with him in his, in his resurrection. And then he talks about what we need to do. So there's indicatives, who we are in Christ. This is things we need to believe about who we are, believe those things, and then, and then we do these things, the imperatives. And, and that's me not telling you what's in the passage, I guess. Uh, then Colossians 3. You can write Colossians 3 down as well, and kind of the first 10 verses there. But now uh, turn to 2 Peter, if you would. 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me just kind of look at a couple things here. And in 2 Peter 1, look at the first four verses. Or let's see, let me start. Um, 
We'll, we'll go with Second Peter. He says this in verse 3. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. And so these are, these are things that, are, that, that we know, that these are indicative, things that we know to be true. We believe these things to be true. Verse 4, By which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them, and that's through believing these things to be true, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort. Now, now we get into the imperatives, right? So we know these things to be, be true. We believe these things to be true about who we are. And, and then we come to these things we do. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are ever increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge, it's an indicative again, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you see how those things blend together? Things that we know to be true about us, these are indicative, these are things God said, this is true, and so I I believe these things to be true, and yet I I also have these things that, that I'm to do, and I can't I can't, do the, I can't believe these things and I can't do these things apart from Jesus Christ. It's only in him. Here's the application. Let me, let me just skip to the application here. Our union with Christ lived out. I, I need, first of all, to, to look for warning signs. I need to look for warning signs that I, I'm not understanding my identity in Christ in light of the gospel. I, I, can't, I can't just look at my actions, I need to look at my heart, right? And warning signs are things like self-righteousness. Do I see self-righteousness in my life? Am I focused, as I think about self-righteousness, am I focused on my external conduct? You know, you think about the Pharisee and the, the, the tax collector and how the Pharisee was able to point to his external conduct. I'm glad I'm not like this person because of these things that I, I do. Am I focused on comparison with others to, str- to track my, my spiritual health? Uh, am I focused on my, my self-sacrificing and, and my, my disciplines? Could I, am I such a disciplined person that I can point to my disciplines and say, because of these disciplines, I, I'm right before God? Am I jealous of the grace and gifts that others have received? Am I upset when others are elevated and, and I'm slighted? Do I have a spirit of bondage as I think about God's instructions and commands on my life? Do I have a lack of joy? Have I been deceived about God's grace? Do I have a lack of fear regarding sin? Am I just kind of living this, this life saying, I'm not really concerned about holiness. The idea of, of sin in my life doesn't strike fear as I think about my relationship with God. Do I have a lack of assurance? Now, if you're really careful here, this is such a fine line. Ferguson talks about this again in, in, in the whole Christ. And here's what you have to be really careful of. And, and, I, and I, again, this is, uh, I wish I had another couple months to think through this because this is, this is, some of this is new to me in, in terms of how to flesh all this out practically. Let's say that I have a counselee who comes to me and um, the counselee says, I'm, I'm struggling with assurance. I say, okay, well, uh, tell me about, about why. He goes, well, I'm, I'm struggling with assurance because um, I see this sin, this sin, and, and this sin in my life. Now, wh- what can be the temptation of the legalist as we separate the gospel from the person? Or we, we separate the benefits of the gospel from the person of the gospel. Here's, here's what my temptation can be in counseling. Well, let's fix these three things that you're doing. You're struggling with, with this issue. You're struggling with, with that. You're struggling with, with anger. Let's, let's stop being angry so that you can have assurance of your relationship with God. You, you see what I'm doing there? Now, do we want to deal with the anger? Absolutely. But how do we do that? We do, we do, that, by, we do that by pointing them to the person of Jesus. Okay, is your, your faith and your confidence in him and your relationship with him, and does that flow into dealing with, with the anger issues? Or do I just focus on the symptoms? Say, okay, we fixed the symptoms. Now we can have assurance. It's subtle. It's subtle, but it's, it's so real. It's something that I'm, I'm still trying to, to wrestle out as I think about how to counsel myself and, and others. So how do, we, how do we do that? How do we counsel ourselves and others? Well, 
I think we have to, to realize that even believers miss the gospel. I think I have to be very careful to not talk about the benefits of the gospel separated from the benefactor, right? So, for example, a, a counselor would ask this question. A counselor would say, how can I offer these benefits to the person? And a counselor would say, how can I receive these benefits? And now, what, what's the right way to think about it? Well, the counselor should say, how can I preach Christ to this person? And the counselor says, how can I receive Christ? How can I, I get into Christ? I need to proclaim Christ. Donnie Cho would say this, you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. God's grace is greater than you could ever dream. And how do we, how do we, how do we receive God's grace? We don't receive God's grace just by, just by uh, re- receiving it through works. We do it through, through by being united in Christ. Let me close with Hebrews 12. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. It's it's ongoing. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We pray that we would be found in him, the righteousness that's not our own, that's his, but ours through faith and belief in him. Help us to get more into him to live our lives, not by abandoning your commandments and just focusing on who we are, in Christ, just, just thinking about some, some truths about who we are and help us not to pursue you through works of, of our own righteousness, but to pursue you through faith in your son Jesus, believing the things you've said about yourself and pursuing you through, work, through the works that you equip us to do because we love you and want to be found in you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.